On today's show, our guest is Jeremy Streeter. Jeremy is a successful property developer, a sophisticated investor, and a serial entrepreneur. He's also the owner of the Intelligent Millionaires Network in Sydney. Jeremy spent eight years in the Royal Australian Air Force and enjoyed a diverse career and operational deployments overseas. The military role set him up for success in managing teams, relationships, and of course, logistics. As any business owner would know, these things are key and form the foundation of any business's success. Working on multi-million dollar deals as a property developer requires a determined focus. And with his background, Jeremy has honed his management skills into a fine art. As the owner and the facilitator of the Intelligent Millionaires Network in Sydney, Jeremy brings like-minded business owners together to mutually support each other and to help grow each other's businesses. Relationships are king to Jeremy. And as you listen into this fantastic interview, I know you'll pick up on his infectious enthusiasm for business and for life. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Jeremy Streeter. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. It's great to have you here, mate. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's fantastic to be here as well. Really looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, I'd like to start off with all of my guests, especially the ex-Raffi ones with a quiz to get to know you a little bit. It warms us up a little bit. It helps us calm the nerves and maybe you can dispel a bit of that stuff about the Air Force that everybody says about it. Uh, you ready? Yeah, mate, go for it. All right, mate. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. It's in no particular order and it's pretty random. Do you prefer coaching or mentoring, mate? Mentoring. Nice one. Do you prefer cardio or weights? Cardio. Public speaking or writing? Uh, writing. You're a private pilot like me. Do you prefer tail draggers or tricycle undercarriage planes? No, I don't have my tail draggers uh, endorsement, so I'll have to go with the tricycle, mate. Tricycles. Singles or twins? Singles at the moment, but uh, yeah, look, I can't wait to sink my teeth into some twin action. So. Nice one. Do you like to go fast or take your time when you're flying? No, I like fast, mate. Fast you like fast, do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like fast jets and all of that stuff too. That's fun stuff. But you know what? I discovered when I'm out flying, because I don't do it for a job, I like just to kind of cruise along and look out the window and take my time. There's no rush. Kind of pretty cool too. Yeah, no, no. I, I'll agree with that point, yeah. Would you like to be in the office working away or would you prefer to be out networking, meeting new people, making new contacts? Oh, definitely out of the office, mate, for sure. No, meeting new people and building that networking relationship, that's what it's all about for me. Nice one. Would you say that you're old school or new age? A bit of both, I think. Old school values with sort of new age uh, mentality attached. Nice one. You're playing both sides of the card here in the quiz where you need an answer, <laughs> but that's okay. Meditation or contemplation for the last serious question? Uh, contemplation. Nice one. Well, thank you for sharing that, Jeremy. People come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Probably my biggest uh, Go All In 
success, I guess, we'll start with that first, is probably the last 18 months or nearly two years is basically just making the commitment to change from the, my background is obviously in military and public service and then uh, as an employee and in the rat race, I guess. So, and basically making the leap and basically just going all in, quitting everything and just going with the passion that I wanted to get into that way. And basically by doing that and throwing I guess caution to the wind a bit, but when your back's against the wall, you've only got one way forward. So I couldn't do that choice or make that move half-heartedly or lukewarm. So if I was still, you know, to start doing property development in this other business part-time, then, you know, you're only going to get part-time results. So I needed to yeah, go in all in for that and make the decision, quit my job, uh, focus on it 100% of the time and basically the uncertainty of no paychecks or anything else like that. Um, where everything was going to come from next and obviously the, the big family at home and everything else like that it forced me to yeah just give 100% effort for the whole thing um, otherwise yeah it was back to um I mean not only you know did you have mouths to feed and everything else like that but it was also the fact that you know you really want to go back with your tail between your legs and um say oh you know you guys are all right so there's always that as well. Mate I've asked that so question that was- a lot in the last couple of weeks and month or so about going all in and I know you personally and, and I know that you've got a big family with lots of kids. Just tell the audience how many children you've got. Uh, I've got five. So yeah, we got a tally the other week. So that was all right, finally bought one. So we've got five kids, uh, the eldest, three eldest adult, uh, girls. The eldest is 15 in September and then the two youngest are boys and he, the youngest one, Emmett, he is 18 months. So we, yeah, it's a big spread. So we, at the moment we've got three kids that are three or under, the youngest one. So yeah, it's crazy times at home. And um, Lisa, the wife, she she has no choice but to go in all in every day, mate. So, yeah, really big team effort. Everything I do is possible through what she does at home as well. So when I get to uh, travel around the world and everything else like that and trying to secure deals and build relationships and everything else like that, it's a real difficult thing to do knowing that uh, it's a hard slog at home. So, But the upside is as well, obviously, you know, it's like with kids, so they may give you one. Um, you know, 23 hours of grief and then they give you that one hour of um, of awesome reward and you go, okay, I'll, I'll get up tomorrow and I'll do, do it all again. So. I wanted to shine a spotlight on how many kids you got there because it's a very, very busy family and, and you said that you had to go all in and you kind of just sort of rushed over it. And I know you're a pretty humble sort of character. You know, you work on these big giant property deals, man. They're massive. And whenever you tell me about them, I'm sort of like, well done, man. You know, kudos, well done, congratulations. And you're very like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool but going all in and burning the bridges with those little babies at home and your missus and what happened what happened in your mind to go I'm not going to work anymore I'm not working for somebody anymore and you you've got all of that at home and you still did it anyway how did you do that man I'm so interested to hear that there's a couple of things basically yeah I found that once I hit the private sector and basically because I'd only actually been in the private sector for probably 10 years now and so once I actually hit that uh, and got into actually, as you know, being ex-government that as well and military, there's a big difference between being rewarded for effort and it doesn't always collate in defence force and, and public service that the amount of effort you put in is actually rewarded. So it was really refreshing and in the private sector, obviously with the right employer, right background and everything that you are, you, you know, the more effort you put in, the more rewards you can get out of it. So I found very quickly that, you know, we built up a company with, with my cousin, that was a hydraulics industry. Um, he built it up 
fantastic. He, he was the technological know-how and I was the sort of the business background and we smashed that out of the park. It ended up going from working out of his garage to, you know, 35 staff and, you know, $20 million turnover and stuff like that. So we worked really hard with that. But it was also a case of I never really wanted, I didn't really want to take advantage of that relationship by saying, oh, you know, I want to come in as a business partner and stuff like that. So he would have said yes in a heartbeat, but it didn't matter. I didn't really want to put that position on him. So it was mostly a point. There was that and coupled while I had some serious health issues as well, where I've got a, a rare type of meningitis. It's a recurring meningitis that it sort of has a lifespan, they say between 10 and 12 years. It's called Mollerase or Mollerets meningitis. And basically, instead of people getting like a, a cold sore because it's from the herpes simplex virus, instead of people getting a cold sore, I'd get meningitis and end up hospitalized from it and, and unconscious and everything else like that. So took its toll as well. And to the point where when we had our, I can't remember which child it was now, there's a few, but <laughs> the point where our first boy, Oscar, so basically we, had him, we were in maternity ward the next morning and then I had a, an attack, I guess, uh, just from the, the stress of everything. I'm not sure what it was or lack of sleep, but basically I pretty much passed out from the meningitis and had a severe case of it and they rushed me from maternity to ED. And then so Lisa and the baby got to come home and I was still in hospital for another 10 days afterwards. So so this thing, you know, and I've basically been hospitalised for five times, I think, over about the last five years. And so... It was a case of basically, you know, things like that. I had to make a change, you know, mentally as well as physically to actually sort of, I didn't want to, um, you know, and living with, it was basically the side effects of it. I just live with a constant headache, like pretty much 24-7, just the severity is what differs. Um, so had some surgeries and stuff like that and some pretty cool innovative things that have really made a difference over the last 12 and 18 months. And I guess coupled with that change in lifestyle as well of, um, you know, not, it, working for myself, knowing that, you know, the, the amount of effort I put in. So there's a few things. And basically, like I said, it was a, got to a point where, well, I can put in 50, 60 hours a week or whatever, making, you know, some, securing someone else's future or I can go out and I can secure the family's future. So that was pretty much the, the, the tipping point there. So, yeah, so we had to basically go all in, mate. So it was, um, I mean, yeah, and 18 months later, a bit more than that, um, now the rewards are starting to, you know, bear fruit you know so has your health started working for yourself yeah yeah it has it has improved it was probably a bit um uh, coincidental with with some treatment that i got as well so some some surgery that i had to sort of relieve pressure and and some various other things and that really helped there was a really cool pain clinic up in um in perth that that were fantastic with it so the issue was is that every time that i went in there they were treating it as bacterial meningitis because that's a lot you know very dangerous and um and life-threatening so and then I wasn't conscious to tell them, no, it's not that. And then so, and then the family were like, and obviously medical professionals don't, you know, they do an incredible job, but they're like, well, I'm not going to take advice from a family member in this time of stress and everything else like that. So it was difficult. So basically we end up getting it all sorted. So at the moment, yeah, it's on top of things, which is great health wise. And because I've always been physically active and um, trained, my whole life and basically that illness really uh, restricted it quite a bit. So um, getting back on top of that allowed me to get back training, um, really keen open water swimmer and competitive swimmer and that. So I've done that a long time. And so being able to get back and do that sort of stuff has, uh, has, been, has made a massive difference as well. Yeah. 
Well, it's great news. It sounds like the big giant decision to go all in on your own business has paid off in spades, both from a professional perspective and from your health perspective. That's really great. As a property developer, you work on long lead times, but you work on giant deals. For me as a digital marketer, I work in short lead times and kind of smaller deals. And it's like just a constant, I call it deal flow. I have a high deal flow of high things going on constantly. How long had you been in your development business before it started to actually pay you dividends? I mean, it takes a long time to work a deal, to get finance, to build things, get yeah. approvals. Were you six months in, 12 months in? You mentioned 18 months. Well, yeah, it's been 18 months now since we sort of made, since I made the move. Basically, I structured things a bit differently when I do, do property deals and I, I structured things under option agreements. So it's pretty much... You know, we're de-risking as much as possible, de-risking for ourselves as a developer, de-risking for the investor and that sort of stuff. So whereas we're not actually having to acquire the land up front and then have all holding costs and everything else like that mm-hmm. and trying to do DA costs as well. So you, your costs just blow out before. And a lot of times that sinks a developer before they even get it off the ground. Um, so we structured a bit differently in that. So we've been, you know, we, I think from when I quit and started look searching for property deals that suited what we wanted to do. I'd secured my first one in about three months, I think it was. Really quick. Um, yeah, uh, under option, of course. Yeah. So basically it was, you know, little money down, but we had that security um, and then basically we got stuck straight into it and um, found investors really quick. So as far as actually money coming in the door, it was, um, I'd put sort of, um, you know, worked from the end result backwards. So I found investors first before I went and did anything and sort of had a bit of financial backing to actually go out and, you know, and they, and they were happy to come along on that journey as well. So there was money in the door from day one, but it wasn't an income. It was pure, you know, so it was purely to finance, obviously getting the, the deals and everything else like that underway. So kind of takes the pressure off there when you're looking for the deals because then you know what you can look for because you know how much money you've gotten to put it together. Like yeah, that. exactly. So we were really focused on exactly what we wanted to do. We did, And that's the thing with anything you need to have a laser focus. You don't want to have like a shotgun approach and just, and hope for the best. So, and this industry, it's a real fine line between success and, and massive failures. So you've got to choose your niche, right? You've got to be good at it. And, you know, if you are, then you can, you know, then you can be very successful in, with it as well so yeah we were very focused on exactly what we wanted and um and did some pretty deep searching with that had a fantastic property coach guy called mark rolton based out of queensland he's he's taught me a phenomenal amount of stuff so it's been great for that um that side of the business yeah so we were lucky in that sense that we i mean lucky but i mean like i said we we'd engineered it so that we wanted to have the financial backing first i didn't want to yep. basically you know, just go out and struggle and just scrimp and as far as um having, you know, not being able to pay mortgage, pay food for the kids or anything else like that. So it's a bit like um sort of to digress, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger's story. Like people think he just who was an overnight success as a um a Hollywood star, but he actually come and made absolute millions of dollars in the property business first and because he wanted to have the financial security for him to go out and, you know, and go after his passion of acting. So he didn't want to be a struggling actor and then take any role that came to him. He wanted to be financially set. So he had that confidence and abundant mindset, which basically made it an easier road for him. So we're trying to do the same thing. So yeah. And now it's the case of um, 18 months later, we've built a fantastic team. Um, And again, everything, everything that's come together, the doors that have opened have been through the relationships that we've built. And now it's a case of, 
deals get presented to us. I was going to say, once so, you got that first one in the can, that must have felt like, or I, I was feeling awesome when you were telling me that you got it three months in, man. I was excited for you, you know, and it's like yeah. two years ago, whatever it is, and I'm excited for you. Did the momentum of that keep going? And then all, you got another one, another one? Hey, man, this is not so hard at all. It's well, easy. yeah, it, it was kind of, you know, got a massive amount of excitement about it. Like, okay, now I can go get another one, get another yeah. one. And then like, well, if we get all these, then basically we're going to, you know, when we're going to dilute our efforts about how good these products are going to be. So we're like, okay, now this is what we've got. We're happy with this now. Now we've got a next step is go out and get build the team of all the consultants, the architects, engineers, and everything else like that. And so we did that. And then what was fantastic was all of them, we took them on this journey about what we wanted to do with this particular project and they were all for it. And um, that was a difficult process. And it was a bit disheartening because I was sort of new to the industry and particularly looking for town planners there was, I mean, in Perth's a small town, it's still a country town. Everyone in the industry knows each other. So I went through the process of, I was interviewing the town planners to see if they were going to be a suitable fit for me, not about, uh, is my project a good fit for them? So I interviewed probably a dozen of them and there was only three that rang well with me. So, and then one in particular, Frank, he was just like absolutely everything on the same path as me because so many others are just like, oh yeah, that's one hectare. We can carve it up. There's 20 blocks of land there and away you go. And it's like, it's not what, I can go and do that. Yeah. No, it's it's not what we want. You know, we didn't want business as usual. So, but they're like, oh, but you know, that's the case. You know, we're like, okay, thanks for your time. So, but so, and then it just opened from there. Frank obviously was like-minded and then he said, look, I've got a guy, you know, and it started from that. And then um, before we know it, we've got five or six, you know, seasoned professionals that have got billions of dollars worth of projects under their belts. And like, and it's like, well, hang on. I'm a guy that's been doing it for, for six months, hadn't got a project under my belt at all. Mm-hmm. Yet now I've got this awesome team that are along for the journey. So yeah, it's been fantastic. And from there, like I said, everything's just grown. Um, and now we're getting, you know, phone calls daily saying, "Oh, have you looked at this project? You looked at that one." So, great, so great it's good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's it's a great position to be in. So, you know, I think um, any business is the strength of a business is always based on the people. And if you've got a good team around you and you've got reliable people around you, then you can move forward as a business owner with a good degree of confidence and you can make good plans because you know those people are going to stick around, you pay them properly, look after them, all those sorts of things. And every time I talk to a property developer, I find that that fact that you need good people around you is amplified by a magnitude of about a thousand. In a lot of other industries, and I mean it with respect, skill sets are a commodity but in the property space, when you've got millions of dollars invested in things and you've got your reputation on the line and that is everything in that space, people are key to everything. What would you say are the number one things that you look for in people that you work with that have helped you be successful? A couple of things, uh, integrity. So basically that's probably absolute key in integrity and transparency. So if you say you're going to, you can do something, then and actually just, you know, back it, back it up. So backing up your words with actions, that's, that's key. And if it can't be done, just be upfront. And that's the other thing as well. So we've got a lot more respect for people that say, look, not, not really our thing and aren't just chasing, you know, chasing the dollar. So that's great. Look, when it, when it is, let us know what, what is your type of thing. And then when, we, you know, we can come back to you. So integrity and transparency are probably the two biggest things. And, you know, obviously, the quality of product and quality of service and everything else like that, that's part and parcel with it. But, but I'm not even going to get to that stage of discussion with someone if 
or have uh, aren't able to build that integrity and that transparency with them for, in the first place. So, and you can tell when you're having a conversation with someone whether they're you know whether they're being transparent with you or whether they're being yourself or not. And that's for me that's key for anything. Doesn't matter what industry type it is I'm talking to or whether I'm doing what business it is I'm actually um, talking about. It's you know if I don't actually have some sort of mutual I guess, transfer of integrity and trust between that person, then then nothing's going to progress, you know, so. Beautifully said, mate, beautifully said. And I also think that the communication piece goes with that as well, integrity and transparency. You have to be a good communicator to be able to do both of those things. And you can spot that straight away as a business owner. That's really cool. What would you say to somebody that was in property that was thinking about developing something? What expectation would you set from? That must be like a, a minefield of things that can go wrong, how would you set an expectation and what would you say to someone that was thinking about taking their leap into their first one? Don't believe the hype. Um, <laughs> it's, not, and, it's not as hard as what you think or it's not as easy as what you think? It's not as easy. It's as not as easy as what you think. You know, it's, no, it's, not, it's not as easy. And the thing is, it's like um, if you're going to go and bake a cake for the first time ever, you're going to read the instructions. You're going to read the recipe. But so many people with property development, I mean, when we're talking property development, first time it's probably, you know, you've got a quarter acre block and you're going to do a splitter on it, you know. And people go, oh, that's pretty simple. You know, I'll just go to council and I'll get it. And so, but they don't read the ingredients. They don't read the recipe about what it is. And then, you know, it's a different between a cake tasting bad and you losing $200,000. It's a big thing. So absolutely, you know, anyone can do it, but you've actually got to go out and, you know, putting your background work in that first. Um, there's so many, so many hidden traps, I guess, to the untrained eye. So if you want to go and do it yourself, absolutely go out and do it, but just research. And, um, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. When it's your money and your livelihood on the line, there's no such thing as a stupid question. But my advice, and it's not because I'm in the industry, but my advice is go out and seek the professionals. You think that you'll be saving yourself money by doing it yourself? You won't, you know, unless you've got someone that's in the industry whether it's your architect or whether it's your civil engineer or someone that's been there and walked the line or someone that's you know done a lot of property development in the past whether a relative or something like that you need to seek out their advice and it's within in any in industry you know business coach jt he says the wise man learns from their mistakes the genius learns from other people's mistakes you know so go out and find the people if it costs you up front and, you know, and the thing is as well that's what we've done with a lot of a lot of stuff as well we've found I mean, on the, on the largest scale stuff, we've got the ability to find partners that want to come in on the journey. So it's a case of reducing upfront costs by them having a larger back end to the deal because they believe in that project as well. It would be a lot harder sell to say, to go to one of those town planners that just wants to do business as usual stuff and say, oh, I want to do this, this and this. Um, this is the back end reward to it. We want to try and have minimal costs up front, but because of this, they'll be like, nah, you know this is my bread and butter. This is what I do. I want 15% of a prof prop and everything else. So it's, it's, it's difficult. So it's, it's a case of finding the right fit, but yeah, advice for someone just starting out, look, go ahead and do it. It can be extremely profitable and rewarding for you. And a lot of times you can really unlock, I guess, a hidden treasure chest of, of wealth that you were sitting on that you didn't even know, but just go out and seek advice first because um, you only get one crack at it, if, especially if it's your family home. You mentioned uh, you had a mentor, Mark Rolton. I know Mark Rolton. I've done an options course with him as well, and I think he's fantastic. How has he helped you? He's fantastic. He is 
you know, I can call him anytime, ask him for advice. Like I said, he's been there, he's done that. Um, he's worked on the deals from the one splitter that's made in 10 grand right up to the, you know, the nine figure projects and everything in between. He's a fantastic negotiator, but he, what I love about him, what, a, what attracted me to him was his integrity and his ethics around his negotiation. So, and that's basically what made the difference for me. I mean, there's a thousand, prop- there's a million property yeah. dealers out there and they'll all tell you, you know, so many different things and what makes them different. But just for me with him, it was his integrity and the way he went about things. And basically, you know, certain people will say there's no such thing as a win-win negotiation. And he says that as well, but what he says is, is a win with you. So it's a case of when we were negotiating property acquisitions, it was, you know, if we had the vendor, you know, everything we do, we have their needs and requirements forefront of mind. And then, you know, we'll get everything we require based on that if we, if we look after them first. And I guess and that's what sort of set him apart was um, how he goes about it. And just like I said, the, the fact that he's been there and he's done that and gives of his time so much as well. So no, he's, he's been fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've, you've had almost a lifetime of career experiences in a really short space of time that you made a shift to go all in and dive into your own business in property development. It's, a, it's really cool to hear that story. I guess one of the things that people need to learn about going all in and taking a leap from where they are to where they want to be and bridging that gap is about commitment. What would you say the top one or two things are about commitment and how that's helped you in succeeding to where you are? I guess the number one thing with commitment is when you commit to something, you can't be afraid of it failing. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. When you've made the decision to commit 100% and go all in, you have to have the realisation that it may not work. If you're going to bet on black and you're going to put it all on black, <laughs> there's a chance it'll come up red. You know, So the difference is in whatever you're going to do with business and life rather than just gambling is that you can stack the odds in your favor by doing all your due diligence, doing all your research, doing everything else like that and making an educated bet on black. But there's still that 1% chance it'll come up red. You know, it doesn't matter how much you do, how much you put in, some things are out of your control. So I guess that's the other thing with commitment. Uh, first thing commitment is be prepared that it will fail. You know, don't tell yourself it will. Tell yourself that you're going to succeed, but you've just got to have that mindset that, okay, if it does. And the second thing with commitment is, you know, give yourself every opportunity for it to succeed. So if you're going to commit 100%, do all your research, do all your due diligence, do everything else like that and give yourself 100% effort and opportunity for it to succeed. Cool. I just want to shift gears for a sec, Jeremy, and talk about um, your military career and what you'd experienced. Can you tell us a little bit about your time in the RAAF? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess... I guess briefly that comes to a sort of a, a go all in time where that, that didn't work out in the sense that um, I was always going to be a fighter pilot from day one, from whenever I could talk, I guess I was going to be a fighter pilot. So, and I was lucky enough, I secured a scholarship when I was in high school uh, to, they, they used to give out scholarships way back then. It was a thousand bucks a year. And back then that was like, yeah, you beauty. Like, it was massive money. So managed to buy myself a new wet seat and a surfboard with that. So but I had to obviously go to a recruiting center in Perth every, uh, every semester and you know, hand over my grades and that sort of stuff. And you had to be at certain levels to get there. And um, they flew us over to um, ADFA at Canberra as well. And we went through all that. So that was cool. The other thing as well as I was playing foot, Aussie rules football at the time as well. And I was, you know, I was all right. If I committed and put a hundred percent effort in a probably could have done pretty well at it. And I believed my own hype, I guess with that. So I started 
I guess, putting more effort into footy than I did in school. And basically by not committing and not going all in with the scholarship and everything, I lost the scholarship midway through year 12. I uh, lost that scholarship. So now it's like, oh, well, now I'm not going to be a fighter pilot. So I'll, I'll commit to footy, I guess, and quit school and everything else, like the whole lot. And obviously that backfired because, you know, I hadn't put 100% effort into the footy either and then I didn't get where I wanted to go with that. So then I had to sort of tail between my legs, still join the Air Force. So I still did anyway, just went in as general entry and found myself, I joined up as a airfield defence guard, which is pretty much infantry for the Air Force, but remustered very early on in the supply mustering. And so I found myself very quickly, I, I just... But by timing of when I joined, I found myself going through recruit school, going through my core training, and then before I know it, I was being deployed. And for the Air Force, there was a period there where 20 years or so where people could have done 20, 25 years and had never left the country for an actual active The dry deployment. years, the 1990s. Yeah, exactly. So there was obviously the Gulf in 91 and there was a you know 707 and a few other squadrons went across there at the time. But before that, it was... There was nothing. Um, So there was guys there that did 25 years and never saw any active service, not because they didn't want to, it's because they're just luckily for the world, there wasn't any. Yeah. So, but mine was different. I basically graduated and within three months I was in New Guinea and went there and then I come back from there and then another three months, well, whatever, six months, I think it was a bit of a blur, but before I know it, we were up on an exercise called Croc 99, which was up in Townsville. And that was set to be, as you know, a really massive exercise with, uh, I think it was 3,000 Marines and all sorts were coming over. It was going to be a huge exercise. And then basically we were literally sitting in the boozer one day and we started seeing some uh, stuff on the news about East Timor and everything that was going on there and the Indonesians causing a nice mess over there. And we sort of joking around, having a beer, and going, we're going to end up there in a couple of weeks. And like, nah, nah, not we're going to end up there. And then... You know, me being a young 19-year-old, I was like, no, nah, no. Nah. And then yeah, before we know it, all right, Croc 99's postponed. You guys are all going to Darwin. We're like, oh, okay, cool. So we'll go to Darwin. And then before we know it, it was literally the well, we were there, not there for very long at all. Um, and they called us all, called our particular squadron into a big meeting and said, look, a lot of you guys, and pretty much gave them the ultimatum and said, look, it's not very nice over there at the moment. Um, we're going. Uh, you guys have got pretty much the next 20 minutes to make the decision of whether you're going to stay in the military or not. Um, because there was guys that had, I said, done 20, 25 years, mm. had all the kids and everything else like that. And they said, you know, this is what you joined up for. You're heading overseas in the next sort of two or three days. You know, we can understand if some of you don't want to do it. If you don't, there's your resignation papers up the back, literally. And there was quite a few that just said, you know, they're done. They like I said, they've done 25 years or whatever. They were yeah. still on the old, they're still on the old, um, was it DFRDB scheme? And they're like, nah, they're their pensions and off they went. Yeah. So, but, and it's, so then before we know it, we were, you know, shipped off there. We went in on, um, I was working for air movements at the time. So we were basically aircraft number six that went in there right at early September of 99. And yeah, so that was, um, a real big item. And I guess going all in there, you didn't really, uh, sort of have the choice. You were, it was a real unknown in that sense. New Guinea would, you know, Bougainville had been going quite a long time and it was peacekeeping. It was a lot different. It was an established sort of conflict, uh, whereas East Timor wasn't. It was still very hot on the ground. Um, it was peace enforcing, as they, you know, know back then, as you, as you know from being there. And, um, you know, basically there was just, Darwin was just absolutely crazy, that Darwin airport. And, uh, 
airfield and basically they just said, oh, look, there's an aircraft there. We know that's going to Timor. Go and jump in the back. We're like, oh, okay. There's your ammo on the, on the tarmac. Grab as much as you can and just head <laughs> off. And like, oh, okay, all right. So jumped in there. This one's going to Dilly. Yep, all right. So we're in and they're like. Well, Organised Air Force, huh? Organised. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was crazy, you know, and we had a couple of SAS boys sitting in there and like, are you guys going in? They said, no, no, first day in, boys. And we're like, okay. We'll follow you. They're like, yep, sounds good. <laughs> so I'll stay behind yeah. those guys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they said, can you run? We're like, yeah, we can run. We, we, I'll stay right on your back, mate. So, and that's what we did, you know? And so we just, we got to that, the, the ramp door opened up the back and you just didn't know what to expect on the other side. And you just head down and just, uh, and ran, you know? So and then, you know, I was there seven months. I think that, that first stint and um, yeah, it was crazy. Obviously a lot happened and uh, over there and um there was I mean, a thousand different opportunities that you know, well, a thousand different situations where you needed to go all in on them. So yeah, it was um, a very different conflict to what I guess people are used to. And I mean, now it's not even, you know, because of you had the Gulf several times and you've had Afghanistan, everything else like that. It's not even, um, it's very even really mentioned now, you know, East Timor conflict. So, and there was a massive, as you know, there was a massive Australian contingent there when it was in its full swing. You know, there was six or 7,000 troops there at the time and it was, yeah, it was, pretty full on there so but you know the Aussies got on top of things really quickly yeah I mean I'd, I'd like to go back there and see what it's like now I mean, it's 20 years no, what is it 19 years now so it's can't long believe that it's that long ago yeah I was lucky enough to go back there after must have been in 2006 I think it was and landing at the airport there and you get out of there wearing your civvies and stuff and without a gun it was all a little bit strange because when I was there same time as you mate the place was burnt to the ground and mm. be decimated and it was a very surreal experience going back to what was a I guess a quasi war zone and seeing it as not a war zone anymore and just like normal people going about their lives and they have their own their own state their own nationhood and their own yeah and stuff like that it's kind of pretty cool to be part of something as big as that did you ever think that wanting to be a fighter pilot you'd end up on the ground in another place like that doing a completely different job I bet that's the furthest thing that you ever thought was going to happen yeah, no, I didn't expect that. Didn't expect that to be heading down south to Margaret River surfing with mates and, like I said, playing footy and everything else like that. And then and before I know it, just, uh, yeah, in, in a war zone and just like, and I mean, you're doing your, your whatever it is, 28 days or you're doing your four-hour gun picket at three in the morning. You're just you're sort of looking up at the stars going, it's a Saturday night, you know. I know exactly what my mates are doing right now back in Perth and uh, they've got no idea, you know. So it was... um. But I mean, the other thing as well is that sort of, I event, I remustered to air crew when I got back from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it was a case of, you know, like every sort of ground trip that was in amongst that, you were, you know, you, you might shower on day 17 or whatever the case may be. You know, the only water we had there was, it was the choice is yours. You can wash it or you can drink it. So that's, a, you know, it was a pretty simple choice. And then like the load masters had come, you know, the Herx had land and you'd help unload them or guard them and that sort of stuff. And they'd come off and they'd throw you a nice, ice cold chalk milk and you're like, oh, look at those, look at those rock stars there. They all smell like roses and they're all nice and clean. And I thought, oh, when I get back, that's, I'm still going to be air crew. So I basically, as soon as I got back, I um, put in the application to remaster to uh, Loadmaster and uh, went through that. And I was, you know, I, it's another thing I put, I went all in on that and uh, did everything I could and managed to get through the process on the, on the first go which was great. And I was, at the time, I was, I think, the second youngest in RAF history as a loadmaster. So so um, I was really young. So obviously that had its challenges as well. And the fact that um, you'd go, 
with that loadmaster position came an automatic rank of sergeant. And so I was a 20 year old sergeant and, uh, you know, uh, didn't sit well. With them. Seriously, mate. No, of course not. Of course yeah. not. You know, and, and it was, it was hard in that sense, but it was also like, well, you know, I've just got to swallow that pill. I'm, I'm quite happy to swallow that pill because there was obviously guys that had done 20, 25 years to get to that position because promotion back then in the air force, I don't know what it was like in the army, but promotion in the air force was at a standstill. So it was very difficult to get to Sergeant. And then, you know, our, our sergeants messes were called snakes pit, snake mm. pits, you know, so living in the snake pit there and not as a 20 year old and, going to dinner with the 50 year olds and everything else like that. I was literally like the, um, the, the nerd kid in school having to sit on his own for lunch and stuff. So yeah, it was, um, Dude, you were all in, in the, in the sergeant's mess for sure. Right? Yeah. All in, in the sergeant's mess, mate. So it was fun times. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, how, how a, many years did you do in the end in total? Just under eight, just under eight. So, nice. and oh, look, I was a career air force. I didn't, I didn't want to get out at all, but basically I had, for my first marriage, my eldest daughter, Caitlin. So we just had her. It was just before I was about to head off to Afghanistan. And basically, yeah, like I said, and being air crew, as, uh, you were called up at it all times. You know, basically, you, you didn't own your life, obviously. So, yeah, so it was a case of, and I, you know, the ex-wife, she got quite ill with postnatal depression and we didn't have any family in Sydney where we lived. We were both from interstate. And so it was a case of I'd come home and the neighbours would say, oh, you're daughter was crying for three days straight and stuff like that. And it was, it was difficult to obviously keep focused. And as air crew, you've got to just be a hundred percent focused on that task or, you know, bad stuff happens. So it was difficult. So I had to make that choice and had to sit down with my CEO and everything and go through it all and just say, look, I don't know what to do. And in the end, it was a decision that I didn't take lightly. It was also a non-decision. Like I was always going to do what I needed to do for, for Caitlin. So Yes, I got out and then basically became a public servant over here in WA and joined the prison service and then basically to be closer to home and everything else like that um, and had the support network of all my family. And before, and then as I graduated from that, they posted me up to Roeburn, mate, in the middle of nowhere, two days drive away. So again, we were back to Grand Zero. We had no family and support network up there as well. So yeah, so... Well, mate, that's a really great story, and it's and it shows you what the a military career can be. If anyone's ever considering a career in the military, any of the listeners, uh, Air Force is a fantastic option. And you can hear just in Jeremy's five minute explanation there that he managed to change jobs three times in that eight year career, which keeps it interesting and keeps you on your toes as well. And I'm the biggest advocate for a military career as well. I was in two services in the Navy and the Army, and you're in the Air Force, so we got all three of them right here on That's this it. podcast, which is kind of cool. Let's just shift gears again. Tell me about networking, the Intelligent Millionaires Network, and what that's done for your business, and tell me a little bit about it. I'm really interested to hear some more. Yeah, so basically, uh, Intelligent Millionaires Network is started by uh, my, my business coach, JT Fox. Um, he started that and basically wanted it as an accountability network as well. So he had obviously, uh, he's, you know, got tens of thousands of students all around the world and he wanted them to not just go away from a, like a one-year event that he'd have and everyone would be all psyched and pumped about, you know, growing their business and everything else like that and expanding their, their networks. And then basically a month later, that fizzling out and getting back to norm and everything else like that and, and not and not progressing with it. So this was basically regular monthly meetings where we bring in um, guest speakers, either local or national millionaires or from international guest speakers that can really add value to the members through their content and also to bring them into their network. So that's the other thing as well. 
I said, the focus of it is it's not, it's definitely not a, like a social breakfast club where it's a business card swap thing. It's not what it's about. Uh, it really is about members there are wanting to grow their network and they're wanting to either partner with people, find business partners, find joint venture partners, find new investors or invest in new businesses themselves. They're really focused on growth and they're not closed minded about just local growth. They're, you know, national growth, international partners and that sort of stuff. So in the six months that we've been going in Sydney now, we've got 122 members, which is great where Melbourne has opened as well. They've got similar numbers and Brisbane as well. Um, so that's fantastic. There's 33 cities around the world. Every major city you can think of, they're there. Uh, we've got just under 3,000 members. It's they're a fantastic group of like-minded people. Like I said, everyone is focused on growth and expansion and collaboration rather than competition. What type of That's businesses the, are in there? What type of business owners? All sorts of industries, mate. Every, every industry you can sit, think of from, from there may be the multi-level marketer that's, you know, with those sorts of industries through to property, through to health, you know, social media, marketing agencies, law firms, accounting, you know, all sorts, you know, stationery, doesn't, whatever you can think of, travel. So there's, there's no industry types that are left out there. The key to getting the most out of it is having the same like-minded mindset of wanting to collaborate and grow your business. And that's the thing, like people now, uh, what I love about it is it doesn't matter what industry type you are, the normal sort of networking process is, oh, I'm in property, oh, you're in property, oh, we should network, we should get together and see what we can do. But the, there's a couple of barriers with that. One of them is a lot of times people are still in the competitive mindset. So they're like, well, I'm not going to share anything with you because you're, you're my competitor. Like, yeah. you, know, you know, like one, one real estate agent isn't going to say, we should combine listings. You know, they're not, it doesn't happen, you know. Mm-hmm. So whereas this, it isn't like this. So basically it's that, that I would really love on my team and, you know, and someone else has got, and so it doesn't matter what industry type we're in. It doesn't matter what our backgrounds are. We can work together. We can, we can do stuff together. And that's what I love about it. So, like I said, and, and great guest speakers that we get in that really add value and content to them. We meet monthly in Sydney. And, yeah, it's been fantastic. So, it's, like I said, we launched in November. Um, we've got another one on the 20th of June coming up uh, with JT, the original business owner there. So, really looking forward to it. We're looking forward to growing the, the numbers. And um, What does the next 12 months of IMN look like for you? Uh, next 12 months, we basically we're wanting 300 members by Christmas this year. And again, we want basically we're just wanting as much growth in the network as possible to, so it can add value to each member there. So it only takes that one connection to change everything. And it's been, I mean, I'm, I'm proof of that. The, you know, the one connection that I've made, the very first connection I made, he obviously saw something in me and he was happy to, you know, and it was people doing business with people. It didn't matter about experience. It didn't matter about anything else like that. It was that he wanted to do business with me. Um, and it's the same with investors and finding investors and everything else. You know, deals come and go. The deals will stack up. The, the numbers are going to be the same. It doesn't matter, but it's people want to do business with people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about, that's what I love about this network is they're all genuinely, every member there is genuinely looking to grow their network and grow their relational capital. And that's a big key. People doing business with people. The numbers and everything, honestly, they're irrelevant, you know, because if the deal stacks up, it doesn't matter what it is. No matter what. A deal's a deal, mate. A deal's a deal. But if it's the people are right, then that's what makes all the difference. That makes it from a great deal into a phenomenal business idea. What would you say to somebody? A lot of people struggle with networking. They have a hard time going out there and and putting themselves out there and doing that. And and understandably so. It can be an uncomfortable thing if you're busy working away and it's kind of an ancillary thing that you need to do to grow your business. And I think business owners know they have to do that. What would you say the, the number one tip would be 
if you struggled with networking, you knew you had to do it and you're going to put yourself out there, what, what would you say to help them? Be yourself. You know, that, that really is the key is just to be yourself. Now, I mean, there's a, there's a thousand tips I could give. I guess another one is you've only got one, one opportunity to make a good first impression. So give yourself the best opportunity at that by, if you're attending a business networking event, go like you're dressed to do business. That's mm-hmm. one thing. For first thing, don't rock up to a business networking event in trackies and a hoodie. Yes, it's cold. That's okay. fine. And it's cool. I love Adidas and night too, but I'm not going to go and give you millions of dollars for a deal. And, yeah. and look, and it might sound shallow, but it's not that. It also gives you the self-confidence that, okay, I feel the part. I look the part. I've already got that self-confidence in me. I know I fit in. That's That's one thing for example, straight away. So it's, it, I guess it's, yeah, give yourself the best opportunity for a first impression and just be yourself. That's the, that's the key. You know, there's other little things. If there's a bar there, go and stand at the bar. If you don't know anyone, go and stand at the bar because people are going to rock up there and then you can always just say, you know, that, that's another little thing as well. Um, rather than just sort of standing in the corner and get off your phone. <laughs> don't use your phone as um, people at networking events and places like that, people use their phone as a shield where no one's talking to them or they'll get out, they'll get out their phone and they'll just pretend to be doing something, put it away. You're there to build new relationships with actual people in front of you, not through a... <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. But, well, thank you for sharing that, mate. That's um, really cool. I'll make sure the links are in the show notes for that as well. Tell me, you're a busy guy. There's a lot going on with all of those children, all of this work, all of this stuff going on. What do you do daily to keep yourself bringing your A-game? Uh, I do a couple of things. I've got basically every morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is I say my, I've got empowering beliefs that I say to myself. Um, I don't wake up and check my phone. That's one of the real key things is, you know, everyone's concentrating on what they feed their body and what nutrition they put in their body, but they don't concentrate on the food that they put in their mind. So, you know, don't have breakfast on the same crap that you're going to have breakfast on the same day. You know, people get up and first thing they do is check their emails on Facebook. It's like, wow, well, hang on. No, that's not, you know, so I concentrate on the first thing I do is I wake up and I say my empowering beliefs about what I, um, what I stand for. And then there's a couple other things I've got a, you know, finding my why about why I actually want to do things. And I write that on uh, everything, every bit of note. I'm a massive note taker. So every meeting and everything I go to, I'm always taking notes. I excuse myself at the start of each meeting and say, look, if I've got my head down, I'm writing notes because I don't want to miss anything. But I'll write my why on the top of each page or anything I do as well. And then the last thing I do every day is the last words out of my mouth are, I love you to my wife. doesn't matter whether I'm home, whether I'm in bed or whether I'm away overseas. That's always the last thing I'll say before I go to sleep regardless of whether we've had a crap day or not, that's the, that's the way I always end my day. I mean, just those simple things, mate, they keep me grounded and focused. Um, really nice, mate. Really you know, nice, simple, easy way to live your life and really empowering as well, man. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming on the Go All In podcast and sharing your story and your background. Uh, it was epic, man. It was really cool. Where can people find out more about the Intelligent Millionaires Network, about you and your business? Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Jeremy K. Streeter on LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably the best way. Uh, obviously on Facebook as well, Jeremy K. Streeter there. Uh, and IMN is uh, au, And you'll basically see where that will take you straight to the landing page where our next event is and how to, how to get in touch with people that way. So, yeah, real simple, mate. Well, I'll make sure all those links are included in the show notes. And if you like what you're hearing, if you could please go over and subscribe to the Goal In podcast, that would be really great. We love it when we get new subscribers. And if you 
like the content of the show as well, it'd be great if you could leave us some feedback, a rating, and a favorable comment. And if not, that's okay too. Just let us know and we'll do what we can to improve. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks again, Jeremy, for coming on, mate. We look forward to maybe revisiting this in a couple of months' time and hearing about some of those epic property deals that we haven't talked about today. I'd love to share that with the audience, mate. So we'll see you again soon, mate. Bye for now. No, thanks, Rob. Thanks very much for your time, mate. Appreciate it.